0: Hello, and welcome to Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, along with Jen Williams. Hey. Yoki is out traveling in China right now, so we have our lovely guest, Alex Ward. Hey, everybody. So, a few months ago, Trump announced that he was going to meet with Kim Jong-un to talk about, what else, denuclearization. And so we've been getting some summit scheduling whiplash ever since that happened. In April, the summit was on. We'll be meeting with them sometime... uh... In May or early June. By May, it was off. I've decided to terminate the planned summit in Singapore on June 12th. But as of June 1st... We'll be uh, meeting on June 12th in Singapore. It's back on! Uh, So the summit's going to happen. Probably next week. Uh, Probably. Today, we're going to talk you through the four possible ways the summit could play out from the best case scenario to the grim doom nightmare possibility. And I shouldn't be so glib about that. It's actually really scary. But first, I I want to talk about how the summit is shaping up a little bit in really practical terms. You know, there's some stuff coming out about the nitty gritty details, like the specific meeting place, the hotel they're staying in. And all this is important. You know, Alex, you've been covering this really closely for us. So why don't you walk us through what we know about the
1: actual summit? So there could legitimately be like trouble in paradise. Where they're where they're going to meet is a place called the Capella Hotel. It's in a it's a five star luxury swanky place in the island of Sentosa, which is just to the south of the actual city of Singapore, it's still in the city bounds. It's actually where North Koreans and Americans have been meeting for the past couple of weeks to actually set up the logistics of the meeting. And it turns out after all that time plan, they were just like. Fuck it, let's just meet here.
0: Uh, <laughs> it's funny, actually. A friend of ours, Alex, you and I, uh, John yep. Hudson at the Washington Post, got kicked out of this hotel for asking questions of the American delegation early on in the prep thing.
1: Exactly right, and they followed him, and it was a whole thing. And now they get to go back. Uh, it's actually a, a fantastic kind of in we- weird sort of place for them to meet. There's animals running around. It's it it like, like you look at the literal ho- peacocks, like, like little walking
2: peac- around on the island.
1: There, there will be peacocks. There'll be all these kinds of weird fauna around. There's a Universal Studios Singapore across from it, so you could imagine these great scenarios of, like, Kim and Trump riding a roller coaster. And there's also the 79th best golf course in the world, just to the side, the Sarah Pong Golf Course, where Trump could possibly play. Uh, but I doubt you'll see Kim want to because he's probably not as good. Okay, so that all sounds fun, but Jen, is, is this really happening? Like, are we
2: sure that this is real? Yeah, you know— It wasn't really clear, as we heard in those clips, if the summit was going to happen. And even like more recently, the hotel itself became a problem, right? So Kim Jong-un apparently didn't want to pay for his hotel bill. Like, you guys are bringing me here, right? We're going to have the summit. I don't want to pay for that. And he was demanding that they go to like a different hotel. Trump wanted to go to the Shangri-La hotel. And it was like this weird thing they had to work out this diplomatic kind of wrangling, and they had to figure out, like, well, who's going to pay for Kim's hotel? And somebody uh, the other day I heard was talking on the radio, and they were like, okay, well, why does Kim get to, you know, what does he have that he could, you know, possibly, like, be demanding pay for my hotel bill? And, like, the answer is a nuclear arsenal, right? Like, we want him to come to the table. We want this summit to happen. And if that means that we have to figure out a way to pay for his hotel. and But then there's the problem, right? We have sanctions. So we literally legally probably couldn't figure out a way to pay for Kim's hotel directly ourselves. So it was like, okay, do we get the government of Singapore to do it kind of by proxy? So these weird little details are actually really important when it comes to the summit. And that's why the fact that it's kind of this crash course rush to the summit, it's like, you know, only a few days away is kind of a really big deal.
0: That, that to me, is the issue that really has been underscrutinized in all of this. Major international summits usually take months, if not years, of PrEP. You have to have meetings at very low levels, and then you have to go up another level. You know, the secretaries of state or the equivalent in other countries meet, and they hammer out a lot of the basic agreements and even the contours of what the top people are going to be talking about before they ever see each other. Right. right? And that is just— You don't you just don't, wing it. Yeah, and that's not happened here. Right, this is a situation in which you have two countries that have had very limited diplomatic contact in the past that are now all of a sudden sitting down and to, going to talk about the thorniest issue dividing them. It's It really could go any number of different ways.
2: But, I mean, we're talking like these are serious details that are still working out just a few days from the summit.
1: And let's be clear, Kim is taking quite the risk to go there. Singapore is 3,000 miles away from Pyongyang. His plane has to stop a couple times for refueling, right? His plane isn't really good enough to get there, and he's legitimately worried about two big things. One, while he's gone so far away, there could be a coup. It's not a zero percent chance that that happens, and he's worried about maybe being assassinated, right? right. Um, and luck—they sort of weirdly lucked out with the Sentosa Island location because that island has one way in and one way out. This the Sentosa Gateway, and and it's the the hotel's in a secluded area, so Kim is somewhat protected. Uh, But it is a big risk for him to go.
0: Before we get into the worst case scenarios, like a coup and whatnot, creating instability, I want to talk about the best case scenario and then move on forward down. Jen, what's the best way that this could go? What's the most optimistic spin on how this poorly planned meeting could come out in
2: practice? Right. So if everything goes perfectly and Trump and Kim get along swimmingly, The best-case scenario is that they would come to some sort of tentative agreement. That could include North Korea dismantling some of its nuclear facilities, even potentially giving up some of those materials, moving them outside of the country, uh, you know, maybe allowing inspectors to come in and inspect facilities, maybe even getting financial incentives like— you know, lifting sanctions, Um, and that would be what the U.S. would kind of offer in return, maybe down the line kind of providing investment, right? Part of the big issue, too, is like the ending of the Korean War. Like, that could be a thing, right? So technically, like, there was just an armistice. Everyone kind of agreed to stop fighting, but there was never a formal peace declaration. There was never a peace treaty that was like, we are officially not at war, and North Korea is very, very serious about that, that would be the best case scenario, right? We come to a peace agreement. We come to a denuclearization agreement. Everyone agrees. We shake hands and, you know, then everyone goes back to their respective countries. And that's when the lower level diplomats would kind of step in and and work through like the actual nitty gritty details of like, you know, where do we move these nuclear materials and how many inspectors do we allow in it and, and all of that. But that would be ideally the best, you know, outcome of this summit.
0: So my view, and I'm, I really hope I'm wrong about this is that this is vanishingly unlikely for the reasons that I was talking about earlier, right? It just, it seems that when you haven't done the spade work first and you haven't figured out what the contours of any kind of agreement about a nuclear program is because these things are highly technical, they're complicated. Even if Trump and Kim agree on a broad brush thing, Trump is never going to figure out the details in a one-on-one meeting with Kim Jong-un. And without... That kind of prior understanding about what details are and aren't acceptable for both sides, even something that seems like an agreement at first, could end up falling apart really quickly.
1: Just a slight pushback. Some experts I've talked to say that actually Trump and Kim meeting first makes sense because North Korea is so top down having Kim's say-so and buy-in early on on at least a broad timeline or a, a broad agreement is actually helpful because then Kim can say, I want this to happen around these times. Trump is kind of the X factor here because he you know, maybe has two and a half years left. He has no patience. And so even if they come on a broad timeline of like, yeah, in 15, 20 years, we'll do this, Trump will go, well, wait a minute. What about me? Right? What's going to happen in my timeline? So they're probably going to try to front load, at least the U.S. will try to ask for a front load a lot of these things, which again comes back to the point of, well, they have a discussed what they're going to do. So there's sort of this mishmash of, yeah, it makes sense, but it doesn't. And this is so hard.
2: And there's this issue, you know, you've seen the Trump administration and Trump himself was like really kind of putting expectations really high, right? Like setting the bar, like, hey, we could totally, you know, have peace. Wouldn't that be great for for us, for North Korea, for the world? And then we'll see what happens, right? We'll see what happens. But you've seen kind of more recently, there's sort of kind of backing away from that and trying to maybe lower expectations. So, you know, just a few days ago, Trump came out and talked to the press after meeting with Kim Jong-chul, who is a a senior North Korean official. And he came out and talked to the press and said, well, I think this is more going to be a getting to know you meeting, you know, between me and, and Kim. And I never said this, everything needed to happen right away. It's a process. It's a process. So rather than setting these expectations really high, as he kind of had done. He's now sort of walking it back like, all right, guys, there's probably not going to be a deal, right? Which brings us to the second possible scenario.
1: Sure. The second scenario is that this is simply just a photo op, right? It's just made-for-TV drama. They meet, they shake hands. I'm sure there's photos and video of them walking through a park at the hotel near Peacocks, and eventually, at the end of the meeting, they come out with a two- to three-page agreement that's it's pablum, right? We agree to be friends, things will be fine from now on, and it really means nothing. Uh, this, by the way, when I talk to experts, they think this is the most likely scenario. They think that at the end of the day, it's just pageantry, which, by the way, may not be so bad because at least you have them agreeing on some sort of, uh, even if it's a fake diplomatic framework, it's at least some sort of diplomatic framework, and we avoid going back to the threats of last year. People talk
0: about diplomacy and sanctions and other tools of statecraft as if like the only purpose of them is the thing that they're stated to do. You know, if sanctions on nuclear program are only successful if they end the nuclear program. Talks are only successful if they come to an agreement. But in reality, there are lots of secondary objectives that one could have and one could accomplish without you know, necessarily the first one happening. So in this case, right, the point of talking could be not – to actually come to an agreement on the North Korean nuclear program, because it's possible even that any agreement the North Koreans would accept would be unacceptable to the United States. It could merely be the case that if Trump and Kim Jong-un are talking and having friendly photo ops, that is significantly better than a world in which they are not and are yelling at each other on Twitter, which which is our third and very likely, I think, possible but not inevitable scenario.
2: Right. I just want to, before we we go to that one, I just want to say there are a lot of experts who also think that the photo op kind of scenario could be a bad thing. Um, And that's specifically for the U.S. So one of the things that Kim Jong-un really wants is this recognition, right? He wants to be recognized as this, you know, powerful, strong, global leader. You have to respect me. And the fact that a photo op shaking hands with the president of the United States That alone is a huge win for Kim, right? It makes him look, you know, legitimate. I mean, it's literally legitimacy. It's literally the president recognizing you are a person that I can deal with, that I can meet with. You are on the same level as me. You have the same status as me. And there's a concern that if the U.S. doesn't get anything out of it and Kim still gets that, that could actually cause some problems down the line, right? So, China and Russia could kind of use that as an excuse to say well you know we're going to we're going to weaken this kind of maximum pressure campaign that they've been going along with along with the United States with sanctions and say like well look Kim's not being irrational he's not threatening anyone so we're going to weaken these sanctions but if there's no framework for agreement right that actually could weaken the US position and weaken our hand down the line
0: that is not great i agree jen
2: right but
0: I remember what last year was like. Uh, You two remember what last year was like. I'm sure all of our listeners remember what last year was like. It was really scary. Like I would get messages from friends and family saying, are we going to war with North Korea? Like, do I need to think about leaving wherever it is that I live in case a missile hits me? And like that's not to say that threats were likely to escalate at any point, but I wrote pieces, Yoki wrote pieces, many other, you know, really thoughtful, smart North Korea experts wrote pieces saying that these tensions could very plausibly escalate to conflict.
2: Right. Which brings us to the third scenario, and that's essentially everything we just talked about, right? Going back to that tension. It's not full on war, but like what could happen is the two of them meet and it doesn't fucking go well, right? They don't like each other. They piss each other off. Something happens. Trump storms out. And he has said over and over, look, if if this doesn't go well, or if I'm in there and I don't hear what I want to hear, I will walk out of that meeting. He said that multiple times. If he does that, that could be super offensive to Kim, right? And that could cause a massive break in this kind of let's play nicely together, let's sit at the table together. And we could essentially revert back to this not full-on, like, war, right, but just low-level kind of threats back and forth and essentially going back to the status quo ante.
1: Which carried with it a risk of war, right, Alex? Right, and that's scenario four, sadly, which is, fuck, war breaks out. Uh, with, again, any expert you talk to will say it's the least likely of these scenarios. So just to kind of quickly recap, most likely is it's, it's a photo op. And then the least likely is war. But, of course, war is the most scary, right? Millions of people would die. The Korean Peninsula would be completely wrecked. The global economy would be hit massively. American troops would die. Like, it would be missiles flying, chemical weapons used. You cannot, as Yoki put it in his piece, like, however bad you imagine it, it's worse than that. And I think that's a cur- that's like a good summation. That's how bad this could be. And so when the, the warnings that both Zach and Jen have, have rightfully pointed out... That, like, you know, the lack of preparation, how scary this is, like we've just learned today, you know, Bolton has not had a national security level principles committee meeting, meaning that the high-level folks like Mattis and others have not come in and given their advice on how to do this. Like, the lack of planning there is scary because if this really goes that badly, if this really devolves, if they find that there's no diplomatic path forward, war again becomes a
2: possibility. Right. And just so we're clear, like— We're not saying that this meeting is going to end in war, right? I think if things went really badly, it would be probably more likely that renewed threats, scenario three, but that could escalate into war. And Alex, your point about if they both see there is no diplomatic path forward, well, then what is the path forward, right? How else do we get rid of North Korea's nuclear program? Or do we just accept North Korea's nuclear program, right? And the administration has been pretty damn clear that's not something that they are willing to live with, which means, well, what the fuck do you do? Do you just bomb their nuclear sites? And that's where we end up in the war scenario.
0: And on that point, I think we're going to close out of this segment. Next week, we will almost certainly bring you coverage of what actually ends up happening at the summit. But for now, all we can say is we will see what we will see. Trump's right. We'll see what we'll see. After the break, we'll bring you an elsewhere on the exciting topic of the World Cup. Hey, worldly listeners. This is Todd Vanderwerf. I'm the host of Vox.com's culture podcast, I Think You're Interesting. FX is The Americans, one of my favorite shows, and one of those shows that takes on global geopolitics in an interesting way, just aired its last episode. You should check out my conversation with the show's co-star Matthew Reese and showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. I think you'll really enjoy it. Listen and subscribe to I Think You're Interesting wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So for Elsewhere, we're going to the World Cup. The World Cup starts next week. I believe it is the sport ball called soccer and or football, depending on where you are. Um, But the U.S. isn't in the World Cup. But you know who you should root for instead? Iceland. And we're going to tell you why.
0: Yeah, the official position of worldly, I want to be very clear, is that Iceland should win the World Cup. Yes. It's a country of under 400,000 people. It's the smallest country ever to participate in the World Cup. And they love it. They just are super stoked about their tiny country getting into this major international competition, maybe the biggest sports competition in the world, most significant, even more so than the Olympics, arguably. And, and like, it just doesn't make sense that a country of 337 million like the U.S. can't get in, but Iceland with that is smaller than some U.S. moderate-sized cities
1: So it's about the size of Santa Ana, California. Yeah. So, Alex, how
0: the hell did they get there?
1: So, okay. I've— I'll be I fucking love this story. (laughs) I I love this team. So there's another competition you should know about called the Euro Championship, which is basically like the World Cup, but only European teams. Iceland had made it for the first time. This was 2016. And no one expected them to do well, right? They were just a ragtag group of Icelanders who were there to play. And all of a sudden, they started to win and to win. And they needed to win one more game before they could move it out of the group stage and start competing with the really big teams. And there was this moment where they were tied one-to-one and there was this breakaway to try to score a goal literally at like the last second. And guys, I can't tell you how dramatic this was.
2: Right, so there's this dramatic moment in the game where all of a sudden this Icelandic announcer starts to see that they're, oh my God, they're about to make this goal that will like send them to the next level, right? And he just starts to completely lose his damn mind. Screaming incomprehensibly. Just, he's so excited. And just to picture this guy, buttoned up shirt, serious kind of sportscaster guy. And he's got these headphones on and he's just screaming and jumping and his arms are in the air. He's like jumping and punching the air and grabbing his head. So many emotions. So excited. Okay,
0: this is awesome. And honestly, that's legitimately one of my favorite videos I've watched in the past year. But I still don't understand... And Alex, maybe you can enlighten us because you're the soccer fan here. Like,
1: how
2: how did Iceland get so good? Right, if they were so bad, like, what the hell?
1: So before I get to that, I think it's important to, to to just a quick sort of backstory. So after they had won that game, that was against Austria, they scored that goal in like the last second. They won two to one. Then they go on and they beat England, and people think, oh my goodness. Is this a fluke? No, it turns out they keep going, they keep going, they keep winning, and they qualify for the World Cup in a group that included, like, Turkey and Ukraine and Croatia, three really good teams. So how do they do it? How do they maintain this level of success? One, they're taking advantage of being small, right? They have a bunch of coaches that they've trained at the highest levels, professional coaches, coaching every player in Iceland from, like, five-year-old to professional.
2: So they literally sent them to, like, coaching camp
1: coaching camp, right. it takes like a year, they get full certification. So you can imagine that every kind of player is getting professional coaching, right? In the US, if you remember when you played soccer, it was like someone's parent who coached. And oh they yes,
2: were... I definitely remember my days playing soccer, Alex. Well, Thank uh, you for reminding me. Okay, well, young okay, I did. Yeah, okay. And so
0: when I was five, I was the world's worst goalie, but yes, there were like parent coaches.
2: Right,
1: exactly. And, and they were volunteers uh, and coaches get paid to do this. The other is that they, the government especially put a lot of money into infrastructure, indoor facilities. They've, they There were like one in 2000, these big indoor halls. There's 13 now. Uh, They're all over the place in Iceland, and this allows players to play year-round. Because it's cold in Iceland. Because it's cold in Iceland. And then, frankly, they have good players now. (laughs) Um, The training has worked out. They have their golden generation. And what I said earlier about taking advantage of being small is when coaches identify players that could be potentially good on the national team, they know the person to call and say, I have this person. Like, it works out that they all just know each other. They've played with each other for years. They've developed this chemistry and this system that has just worked out. So in 2010, they were the 112th best team in the world out of two 207.
2: So not so good, is what you're saying. <laughs> not so good.
1: They are now the 22nd best team. That's three spots ahead of the U.S., by the way. Oof. Yeah.
0: What Really, Alex, what you're describing is a story of a successful... In economic terms, like a national greatness project, yeah, like, exactly. the, like it's a, it's almost like a monument. They invested a huge amount of capital and resources in what was a project, not necessarily for like economic development, but rather for a pure national prestige thing. And for Iceland, this has worked. It, it's rallied people. It seems like the country, like the ordinary people in the country, are super thrilled about this. Showing up, and I remember watching a clip of that game, that the Euro game that you were describing. And the stands were filled with Icelanders. And I wondered, like, what percentage of the country is literally at this game? It was a big stadium.
1: It was uh, 30,000 or so folks, so that's roughly one-tenth of a country at a game. (laughs) Right. It's unbelievable. This this is just so, so good. And they're in a group with Argentina, Croatia, and Nigeria. That's a pretty tough group. However, you have people saying they could get out of it, which means they go far in the tournament. And I'm going to make a crazy claim now. The first game Iceland plays is against Argentina, which arguably has the best player in the world. Iceland's going to win that game. Iceland's going to beat Argentina. I'm going to say 2-1. to
2: We will hold you to that. So, you know, when we're talking about how excited the country gets, I I don't think that Americans really understand that maybe the closest possible thing could be, like, the Super Bowl, where, like, everyone tunes in. I mean, I just watch for the commercials. But—
0: You're the worst. Yeah, seriously.
2: So, but they have— this viking war chant that they do and there's this video and it's like a sea of icelanders it's like i have no idea it could be a bajillion people standing out in this central square and on stage they had these guys with viking war drums and the entire crowd with their arms in the air in like a v they do this and clap and it gets faster and faster and more intense and more intense and it's like terrifying because they're all in unison but it's also just insane to see like you know a tenth of the country come out to a viking war chant for their soccer team so with
0: that mental image and this chant of viking soccer hooligan plunderers (sighs) in your mind uh we'll say goodbye uh and thank you for tuning in
2: thanks to our producer bird pinkerton
0: uh don't forget to like rate review subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud and iTunes and all the different platforms.
2: We'll see you next week, guys. Bye. Go Iceland!